I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be reading getting, uh, beginning at verse 26 to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming of one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Our Lord and our God, this is a difficult passage. The writer of Hebrews was very clear in what he was committing or even conversationally sending to these first century Christians. To him, it was clear as crystal. To us, it seems to be a muddied water. So this passage has with it some misunderstandings, some misapplications, because we're human. But we're asking this morning, O oh Father, that the sincerity and the clarity of your word would ring forth this morning. 
May this passage be something that we learn from, something that convicts our hearts, something that directs our lives, something that praises you. And so we ask this morning, O Lord, that you would help us by the clarity of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things that this passage has dealing with and allow us the privilege to see you in the midst of it. These things we ask not because of our worthiness, but because of who you are. And we remember that there is no darkness of shadow with thee. So may the sunlight shine forth from this passage that would enlighten our hearts and burn to the depths of our soul. For we have a choice to make. Guide us and direct us, we pray. In the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. As Harold was saying earlier concerning grandchildren, I would say with a hearty amen. I appreciate our grandchildren. And when our first grandchildren were born, people were asking us, what are you going to have them call you? Well, we're from New York. And up there, it's grandma and grandpa. It's not this meemaw, pawpaw, and all this other stuff. But I became a little bit more stern. I said, when they, people asked me, what are you going to have them call you? I said, sir. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. In fact... I don't believe I'm standing before you in a, in a form of darkness, but I believe they said the words grandpa before they said mother. They said my name before theirs. And I, had, I have a, well, I'm not going to have any more grandchildren, none that I know of. But I made it a point that when they were born, I went to their hospital room and I held them. And I sang to them. I sang the simple song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I think that's an interesting thing to do if you're a grandparent. But it's a humbling thing. Because I was holding in my hand a precious soul that needs to understand that Jesus loves them. And I'm thankful for the children. And yes, we still do practice cotton candy and Red Bull and send them home. We still do that. That has nothing to do with this morning's sermon. But happy Father's Day to all of you men. When you leave today, there will be a, a fattening gift for you. Candy bars and... This hunk of, I don't know what it is, it's some kind of roll of meat that has been cured, and it's okay to eat, it's okay. I've enjoyed them in the past, and so I'm looking forward to that in the future. 
May I begin this morning by highlighting a couple of verses that the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Colossians. In fact, if you want to turn there to read these along as I read them, I invite you to do that. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. And there's a purpose behind this. I want you to be made aware of that. There, there is a definite purpose of doing that this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to read for you verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If becoming a Christian meant we no longer sinned, then the Apostle Paul would have wasted ink and paper when he wrote the words, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It is possible to expose, if you will, or embrace a form of externalism that makes us look really good to people on the outside when really we know that what the Bible says is true. That while we are saved children of God, we're also still sinners. How is it then that sin continues to wreak havoc in our mind in our hearts it's because while we are indeed in Christ who liberates us from the bondage of sin we are also flesh that's the problem we experience the desires of the flesh that are against the spirit for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. We're justified in Christ. All of the guilt that attracts, attaches to our lives is dealt with in Jesus. We have died to sin in Christ so that it no longer has a tyrannical hold or rule on our lives. But although sin no longer reigns, it remains and rages. It no longer defines us, but it does cling to us. We therefore need to learn not to underestimate the seriousness of sin. Instead, we must watch out for its subtleties and insinuations. To fight against sin, we must come to understand its addictive and enslaving power. As the saying goes, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. 
Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Sin Sin then must be attacked at the point of entry before it takes root within our hearts. The only way to tackle sin is to recognize that we need to kill it. We need to do it without compromise so as to prevent all future damage, seen or unseen. We will only be able to overcome sin when we're motivated to take a strong measure against it. And yet, we make a serious mistake if we think that we're the ones who can overcome sin's indwelling power. Since Christ is your life, Your battle against sin is not faced in your own strength, but in God's mighty power. And since Christ is your life, your battle against sin is not a battle for salvation. For he has already secured that for you. So now you need to commit to putting your sin to death, and you need to ask the Holy Spirit to overwhelm you with his wonderful love and fullness so as to create within you the desire to do that which God's word calls you to do, to seek out, find, and kill off all that is earthly within you. When we come to our passage this morning in the book of Hebrews, The closing verse or the opening verses of chapter 10 seem to be opposite of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Colossians. For the opening phrase is, notice if you will, in verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It would appear that there is a problem, there is an issue, there is a situation of life that the writer of Hebrews is bringing to light because it ought not to be part of the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. So, We are aware, at least, from our previous study in the book of Hebrews, that these Hebrew Christians were facing horrendous persecution and separation from a society that they once held dear in order to follow the one who could faithfully and totally atone for their sin. Jesus Christ. These followers of Jesus may very well have been considering leaving the claims of Christ and to follow the bonds of the law. We know these things to be true based on the opening paragraph in chapter 2, which says these words.
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So now, here we are this morning contemplating what has happened. Let me, if I may, may this be our intent this morning. First of all, a reprimand for those who have drifted away. A reminder of what once was and a right response that we need to follow. A reprimand. It's a strong warning that comes in verse 26, a warning that should ultimately drive us back to the book of Numbers in chapter 14 and verses 26 to 45. We'll not take time, that's for your homework, to go and review those verses. <coughs> Excuse me. For beginning in Numbers chapter 13, that is when the nation of Israel comes to the threshold, if you will, of the promised land. They send in the spies to spy out the land. And as the spies come back, the 12 that were sent in, only two gave a favorable account. Ten said we can't. All but Joshua and Caleb, who said, I know we can't, but God can. And it was from there that the children of Israel mourned and warned against Moses. And they said, we will not go in. If you take the time to read in chapter 14, the beginning few verses, you will find out that God says to Moses to give them an answer. And the answer is this. You stiff-necked people. You will spend the rest of your lives, everyone who is 20 years old and older, you will die in the wilderness. You will walk aimlessly and you will lose your physical life. Well, when you get to chapter 14, verse 26, all of a sudden the people, they hear this message and they begin to say, oh, now we've changed our mind. We're going to go into the promised land and do everything God wants us to do. And Moses said, no, don't do that. God will not be with you. You have made your choice and God will hold you accountable. Well, many of them didn't listen. They did. They went into the hill country 
And the Amalekites killed them, chased them, and overcame them. If you understand that portion that is written for us, this particular portion in Hebrews 10 is a little bit more understandable. The first question we have to answer ourselves is this. Who is the author of Hebrews talking to? Who is he writing to? For your interest, and I trust it will be that way, there are three thoughts on this. The first thought is this. Some say it's the unsaved, people with an ungenuine profession of faith as evidenced by the fact that they failed to cease from sin. The second one, others say it refers to those who were once genuinely saved but who lost their salvation due to their apostasy, which means true believers denying their faith. Lastly, those who are genuinely saved by grace through faith, but who through backsliding can enter a state of sin from which there is no possibility of return. As such, these face temporal judgment and loss of heavenly reward, but not the loss of eternal life. My view falls in the third category. The reason for my position is this. The structure of the language indicates that we is in reference to those being addressed as believers. For it begins by saying, for if we go on. The we is in reference, even the writer himself is including himself in this situation. And best to my knowledge, God has not used an unregenerate individual to author a book that we call the Bible. He's saying we. Not to be undone with that, we must also remember the frequent times that the author of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters, true believers in Christ, Secondly, the word knowledge that is used here in reference to this particular situation is used in other passages to imply a full, genuine, saving knowledge of God, not just a faint awareness. And thirdly, this confirmed by the fact that knowledge of truth was received, not merely heard. Then he quotes in verse 30. He alludes to the fact that God judges his people, which further indicates that we refers to genuine believers, the people of God. So what is the issue? So the, the author is, if you will, addressing a potential category of people who are genuine believers but whose lives are contrary 
to a life of faith and obedience to Christ, they are visibly distinguishable, undistinguishable, if you will say, to unbelievers. They are believers who backed away from Christ rather than drawing to him. They've drawn and withdrawn themselves from the community of faith. They have neglected the spiritual growth and encouragement, and they become isolated from accountability. As such, they have betrayed their confession of faith in the person and work of Christ, the only one whose work can pay for their sins. They've been born again, but they continue on sinning. They willingly and knowingly and continually, verse 26. This isn't just a stumble, a season of rebellion, or a constant struggle against temptation and sin. And, and all of us have experienced that in our lives. But this is an outright opposition against the gracious, loving, merciful Father. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why would they do that? In our study, as we have gone through the book of Hebrews, we recognize the fact that Jesus Christ is superior to all that they would claim to know. Angels, Moses, Abraham, even Melchizedek himself. And that he has entered into the holy place, the holy of holies, not with his blood, but by his blood, in order that they would know and understand the full capacity of their sins, not just being covered, but literally being washed away clean. Why would they go back? Why? Someone has once said that persecution is a great sifter of the church. Persecution has a way of causing individuals to either be determined or to be detoured from their faith. Persecution in a way that these particular individuals are going through is something that is foreign to us because we don't understand. But in other lands of our world, it is very clear as to what they would understand is happening. I read an article just the other day concerning an attack on a Christian school in one of the countries of Africa whereby Muslims came and killed children and teachers of that school. Now that's persecution. In certain countries, when you come to understand and know the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you proclaim that even by baptism, you are then labeled as an enemy of the state. In the United States, we do not know such things. 
Oh, we've been laughed at at the workplace. We've been chastised by family members. We've been criticized by friends. We've been ostracized from other places. But all in reality, we don't fully understand this. So it would be foolish for us to try even to say to these people, why would you do such things? Because we, dear people, are not unsusceptible to the same plight. But the writer of Hebrews presents a caution. And the caution is this, in verse 28. It says, the author highlights that those who rebelled against the law received harsh punishment. Then he says, how much more should those be judged who blatantly rebel against the grace of God under the superiority of the covenant relationship by Christ's death and resurrection? How will we escape? How can we get away from it? So what is their plight? In other portions of scripture, we find out that highlighted for us in verse 27 and then in verse 30 and 31, that they will experience and expect a terrifying fury and vengeance from God. In short, God disciplines his children severely when they cross the line and reach that point of no return when they continue in willful defiance of him. And he may, justifiably, if you will, deprive them of their physical lives. There are three examples in the scriptures that highlight that. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land, brought it to the disciple, claiming it was the full cost. And yet Peter said to them, why have you lied against God? And you know the outcome. Both of them, God took home. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are also warned that because of the, if you will, mistakenness of the Lord's Supper being more of a party than a participation, it says, as Paul writes, this is why even some among you sleep. You've neglected the Lord God. And then in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16, it highlights a sin that leads unto death. Three places that highlight the very, if you will, love of God, and I will say that. He chastens those whom he loves. Yes, 
And he would rather take you home than have you stay here and live a life totally void of him. And that's what the author is writing about. That's why he's cautioning them. Don't go back. Because just as we commented in Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 14, the people wanted to get straight with God. But because they defied God, in fact, it goes on to say, They've defied me 10 times. You check it out. You trace it. God said, now there will not be any more sacrifice for your sin. In other words, God is saying, if that's what you want, that's what you will have. And the consequences you don't want to walk in. That's difficult for us. That is something we wrestle with. Why would God do that? For just one thing. The holiness of his name. You carry with you the name of God. You were called Christian. Person of Christ don't ever take that lightly don't ever try to walk away from God and expect all things will be well they will not be now I don't want to leave you in such a gloomy time because there is a a reaffirmation of something that once was. Notice in the text, if you will, in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partakers with those so treated, or partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. What once was, the writer is saying, remember that. He's not saying that life isn't tough. He's not saying that everything is going to be a bowl of cherries or rose-colored glasses. No. He is talking about strife here. But the reason we can uphold underneath that is the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ that, dear people, he's coming again. He promised that in John 14, verse 6. He's coming again. And so here we are. That when you believe it might be time to throw your hands up and say, what's the use? 
Realize what Jesus has done for you. Now I need to give to you in closing and in quite quick fashion the right response. How do we respond to such things as this? On July 8th of 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, one of the most famous sermons was preached at a time when the Christian world seemed to be in a ho-hum slumber. It was on that day that Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Reading from his manuscript with his calm, collected style, Edwards allowed the powerful words themselves to do their work, piercing the hearts of his audience and driving them to conversion or repentance. Here are just a few lines from that famous sermon. He said, There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of dreadful storm and big with thunder, and were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind, otherwise it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. Hmm. Like the words of Edward's sermon, the words of the author of Hebrews hangs over us today in a dark, ominous warning of judgment. Unless... And with this unless, we know there's always hope. A ray of light shines through the gathering storm clouds, bidding us to choose. Will we heed the warning and stand firm in our faith, or or will we shrink back toward destruction, suffering the consequences of rebellion? Let me ask you these five questions in closing. Question number one, where are you going in your spiritual life? Where are you going in, my, in your spiritual life? Am I drawing nearer to God or drifting away from him? Am I standing firm in my confession of faith or shrinking back toward destruction? Am I gathering frequently with God's people or forsaking the assembly? Am I actively stimulating my fellow believers to love and good works or am I damaging their walk? By answering these questions, you will find yourself tending toward one of the two groups mentioned in Hebrews 10. You will either be standing strong or you will be shrinking away.
Standing strong needs perseverance. Shrinking away needs repentance. Where are you this morning? Let us pray in closing. These are difficult words to hear, O Lord, but they contain in them your concern and your love for your people. We've never been called to walk away from you. Sin does that to us. We've always been called to draw near to you. That's what your word does for us. As we contemplate these things this morning, I ask, O oh God, that your spirit would have free reign in our hearts and the depths of our soul, that we would recognize of where we are in our relationship to you. Are we drawing closer or am I determining to walk away farther? I trust the last will never be. And I ask, O oh God, that in these days of darkness, when we don't know all that the world is about to behold, that we would hold on to our confidence in knowing full well that we know what our Savior has for us. He's described it for us in the wonderful words where he says, I will return and call you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, may our walk with you become more determined, more desperate to draw near. And help us, as Paul writes for us in Colossians, to get rid of every earthly thing. And in this we ask you, in the powerful name of Christ our Savior, amen.